0: So we are finishing chapter 21 today of the Book of Revelation. So we have one chapter left after today. Three more Sundays till we finish the Book of Revelation. We've been uh, walking through this amazing vision of the New Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ as well as a city. We've seen uh, wonderful things how there there's not only no pain and no death, but that all of our tears from our lives on earth will be wiped away. That the foundation is the, of the city is the twelve apostles, the gates of the city, of the twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve sons of Israel, the twelve uh, tribes of Israel. We saw that the uh, Shape of the city was the same as the Holy of Holies, that it is like a giant holy of holies. And now we come to the part uh, which says that uh, there is no temple in this town in this city. Revelation 21:22. And I saw no temple in this city They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there are three sections that I'd like to talk about here today. first one is verses 22 to 23. I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb so it might surprise us to read this statement that there's no temple there because the temple was a symbol of God's presence with his people Why would it now be abolished in the heavenly places? Well, ordinarily you think that if there's no temple then there's no God. But this is saying just the opposite. Actually the temple was a symbol of the two realms existing side by side. God setting up his tent in the context of man's realm. But now the two realms are made one. So the notion of a temple is passé. Remember how the Old Testament temple demonstrated God's distance from man. We talked about this last week. All those barriers, all the rules and restrictions and so little actual contact between any human being and God himself in the end. The Apostle John could see that all the promises of the Bible were now being fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. The former physical temple and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant in the old Jerusalem were now being fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. Think about the history of the temple. You know, this. it just mentions the temple. There will be no more temple. But let's remember that that word temple is chock full with information and understanding from the rest of scripture. Before the exodus out of Egypt and meeting with God at Mount Sinai, God had actually only visited His people to tell them something. For instance, He spoke to Noah and He spoke to Abraham in Ur and called him to leave. He visited Abraham again, if you remember, before the Sodom and Gomorrah incident. He spoke to Jacob at Bethel. He appeared to Moses in the burning bush. But once He met The Israelites at Mount Sinai. God came alongside his people in a new way. A closer way. He led them in the fire of, in the pillow of fire and and smoke. And he instructed them to build him a tent. So he could go on this road trip with them through the wilderness to the promised land. The first time the word temple is used in the Bible, it actually refers to the tabernacle. This moving, portable temple that they carried with them. But after the Israelites settled in houses in the land of Canaan, David and Solomon, of course, built a house, a permanent house for God, a beautiful temple. Where God was worshipped, where sacrifices were offered. For a while it seemed like everything was going well. But the people began to turn to idols to the point that the temple actually fell into disrepair. And God brought Assyria and then Babylon against his people. Who rooted them out of the land and destroyed the temple and the whole city of Jerusalem. When the people returned 70 years later, the first thing they did was to rebuild the temple. But it was a more modest temple than the temple they had known that Solomon built. Remember that at the dedication of that temple, the people that had never seen Solomon's temple were singing and praising God and giving thanks to God and shouting with a great shout. But the old people who had seen the old temple wept with a loud voice, even while the others were shouting for joy. So you couldn't distinguish the sound of the joyful from the sound of the weeping. That's in Ezra 3, if you want to reread that story. And this is not only interesting, it's significant. Prophet Ezekiel, you see, during the exile, had prophesied in chapters 40 to 48 that the temple would be rebuilt, but it would be much greater and more glorious than the previous temple. And of course, all of the rabbis believed that the promise that these promises of a new temple were going to be fulfilled in another architectural temple. And the old people, they knew that even after all their waiting and all their grief over the destruction of the old temple and all their anticipation, they could see this wasn't the fulfillment of that promise. And they wept. But after a few centuries in the generation just before the birth of Christ, Herod the Great Wanted to impress and please the Jews. He thought he could fulfill Ezekiel's prophecy. And he built the Jews a new magnificent temple in Jerusalem. This was the temple which stood during the days of Jesus. But even though it was so magnificent, it actually only lasted about 80 years. Some significant, And while Jesus was alive, some significant things happened in that temple. He was first taken there, of course, when he was 40 days old. By his parents. And there he met Simeon and Anna. He was there again at age 12. Where he was found by his parents who had lost him. He was confounding the elders with his understanding after a number of other encounters there he returned again in his final week to cleanse the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and just a few days after that in his last visit to the temple knowing that what was soon to happen he said To the people of the temple, as he left, See, now your house is left to you desolate. Matthew 23, 38. Of course, Herod's temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD and has never been rebuilt. But before Jesus abandoned, or announced that he was abandoning the temple... He taught some very important things about the temple in his conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4. Remember she asked him a question having to do with the difference between the way the Samaritans viewed worshiping God and the Jews in terms of the proper location of worship. The woman said to him, You Jews say that in Jerusalem it is the place where people ought to worship, but our fathers taught us to worship here on this mountain in Samaria and this is what Jesus said to her you Samaritans worship what you do not know but we Jews worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews but believe me woman the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father So what's he talking about? Is he talking about when we worship in the New Jerusalem on the last day? No, because he goes on to say the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Now when John is writing the book of Revelation about 60 years after this conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman Christians no longer went to the temple to pray for Jerusalem and its temple had been destroyed by the romans but the apostle paul had taught them that they themselves were the temple of god 1 corinthians 3:16 and likewise, the Apostle Peter had taught them that they themselves were living stones that God was building into a spiritual house, 1 Peter 2 5. And now, the Apostle John in Revelation 21 and 22 is telling us that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no temple. For the Lord, God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. Now, some people might be disappointed to hear this. They might say, I'd rather have a real temple than just an imaginary one. But they couldn't be more wrong. That's not the point at all. Like everything else which is earthly, earthly temples were in one sense never real. You can't contain God in a building. That's exactly what Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8:27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold heaven, and the highest heaven cannot contain him. How much less this house that I've built. God graciously gave the temple to teach mankind both about the possibility of actually meeting the living God, But also about the barriers which exist between sinners and God. Barriers which could only be removed by the shedding of the blood of a sacrificial substitute. You see, when children are little, parents often teach them according to their age. For instance, when you're teaching your little child about prayer, you teach them maybe to kneel down, maybe to fold their hands, to close their eyes when they pray. But one day they will know that kneeling isn't praying. And folding your hands isn't praying. And closing your eyes isn't praying. But they're not old enough to understand that praying is actually communicating in your spirit with God but children aren't yet mature enough to understand what all that means in the same way God gave his people when they were like children a temple but as the time went on God made it more and more clear to his people the way things really are Worship isn't really about going to a certain city. And the temple isn't made of stone or wood. The true temple is made of living stones. That is, people who love Jesus. People who are connected to Jesus, bonded together in him to worship God in spirit and in truth. And here in Revelation 21 and 22 is our last lesson. It teaches us that on that day we'll worship him face to face. It teaches us that God won't just visit us. He won't just be available to us when we want to come and see him. Rather, we will be married to Christ and dwell with him in intimacy forever without any barrier. There, there is no, this is my house and this is your house. We will move in together and dwell in the same house. Of course, oneness with God doesn't mean becoming one in essence. We'll still be God and man for all eternity. We could never become God we will be one as a husband and a wife, though they remain two, also become one. But I thought no man could see God and live. Yes, that's why we need new bodies and new minds so that we have the necessary circuitry to be able to withstand the high voltage of God's intimate and glorious presence. And Christ prepares us for that coming day by teaching us that the things of this present world are all just shadows of that which is to come. Now let me take a minute here, and before we continue on in the sermon, I want to say a few things about church buildings in light of this. The first thing to say about church buildings, and and I say this because some Believers, and I'm not saying you, because if you were this way, you would have never desired to come to this particular church. But there are many believers who are still wedded to a temple mentality when it comes to church buildings. Let me point out, there are no church buildings in the New Testament. None. The church building spoken of in the New Testament is one made with living stones. Now, I can enjoy the spectacle of a great cathedral just like anyone else. But I can tell you, according to scripture, the most spectacular church building in the whole world looks like an outhouse compared to the spectacular beauty of a group of imprisoned Christians worshiping Jesus together in their cell. You know, in Matthew 24, there's this amazing story of Jesus responding to folks who are oohing and eyeing over a glorious church building. Jesus says he's walking out of the temple. Just after he says, I'm a, you know, I leave you um, desolate, his disciples come over to him and point out the magnificent buildings of the temple. Now, if I'd been there, I'm sure I would have been caught up in the magnificence of that structure, which was one of the wonders of the ancient world. But Jesus said to them, You see all these? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. If Jesus ever had a chance to admire the glory of a church building, this was it. But instead, Jesus laments over its future. Just as a few verses earlier, he had lamented over the city of Jerusalem, not because it was trashy or dirty, not because it was a poorly maintained. He lamented because of the rebellious hearts of the people. He knew that the important thing was the temple of people and what the condition of that was. You see, not only did he know about the future of earthly Jerusalem and what would happen in 70 AD, not only did he know about the corruption of That resides in the hearts of men. But his eyes had seen the glory of the new Jerusalem which was to come, descending out of heaven. And all that tends to dampen your awe over a physical building, even though it's a magnificent one. In my opinion, a church building ought not to be what draws someone to church. But on the other hand, a church building probably ought not be the thing that prevents someone coming to church. The fact is, our cathedral is being built for us now. That's what Jesus is doing. It's the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem where we will be in the immediate and abiding presence of the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. Now let's move to the second section. And the second and third sections won't take as long as the first. Verse 24 to 26. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Now the gates of ancient cities were closed every night to protect from unexpected intruders. But since it's always day in the new Jerusalem, for there will be no night there because they're not dependent on the sun... But the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Therefore, it's always day, and its gates will never be closed. And the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Now this process began with the Magi, who brought the treasures of their nations to Bethlehem to present to Jesus And down through history, people from every nation on earth have been bringing gifts to Jesus to present to him. And on that last day, the greatest treasures of the whole world, the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, will stream in from the four corners of the earth to present themselves to him with joy and love and gratitude as gifts of worship. And it seems to me that it's likely the process will continue on forever as people who live there gain insight into history and then bring those newly discovered treasures to the Lamb and lay them at his feet. This concept of the wealth of the nations being brought to Israel was repeated often in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. It was thought that this was what would happen when the Messiah came. That he would set up an earthly kingdom and all the nations would bow to him. But we see here that the fulfillment of this and many other prophetic expectations was not to be fulfilled in this present age but in the age to come. The idea of open gates picks up on the idea that we talked about last week of the torn curtain. The point is the door is now open for redeemed sinners to boldly come into the throne room of God's grace forever. I am the door, Jesus said. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Final section is just verse 27 but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life there's a problem whenever you have the doctrine of free grace there's a tendency for untransformed people to count themselves in as a part of Christ's kingdom and so as the vision here describes this glorious city it keeps stopping to clarify the fact that false believers will not be there for the sake of false believers who read this or false believers who reside in the churches So John adds here in verse 27 that no one unclean, detestable, or false will be in the New Jerusalem. They must, the people must not deceive themselves into thinking that they're believers when their lives prove that they're not. No person whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life can be a person who lives a life of abomination and falsehood. He's basically repeating the same thing he said in verse 8, adding abomination and falsehood to the previous list of cowardice, faithlessness, murder, sexual immorality, sorcery, and idolatry. And remember... Here they're talking about lifestyles, not individual actions. Otherwise, David himself would be disqualified. The fact that the citizens of the New Jerusalem are written in the Lamb's Book of Life not only tells us that they belong to Him eternally, but also that the redemption comes about as a result of the Lamb's death and resurrection. In this, we see the gospel, the good news of Christ. We see that there there is such a place as this. There is a place of glory. There is a place of peace. There is a place of eternal joy. And we see that there is a means provided by which sinful human beings can get to this place. Through identification with the Lamb. Last week, I think it was, I was talking to Becky. She was telling me about this book on Buddhism that she was reading. And uh, we talked about how Buddhism, it's like, they tell you, look, the way to find happiness is to kill your desires for paradise for glory for something wonderful you can be content if you just don't expect any of your dream any of those human dreams that reside in your heart to ever come true that you never really that you must kill your desire to believe that there really is ultimately love and and joy and, you know, that is the, the, the mentality of how to find, to find happiness. It's not that you actually find happiness. You'd act, you'd just, you just find it by not believing in happiness anymore. And you could be content because you got what you got. How sad. But God tells us and shows us in his word that there is reason for hope. There is ultimate fulfillment. There is eternal life. There is ultimate love. And this is what we were made for. There will be no temple in that city because the city itself is the Holy of Holies, filled with people of whom the world was not worthy. People have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. The one who said, Be holy as I am holy will complete his work in their lives so that they really will be holy as he is holy. Perfectly holy, pervasively holy, permanently holy. What every believer longs for will be fulfilled. As expressed in Psalm 24, 27, 4, One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The ironic blessing is familiar to all of us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this now comes true for God's people. No more is there seeing in a mirror dimly. No more is there knowing in part.